card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Uh, the next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of the sport. Rick Peterson, the director of pitching development for the Baltimore Orioles. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays at 8 a.m. in the morning from 8 to 10 a.m. I'm your host this morning, Professor Adi Weiner, co-host, collaborator, professor of statistics at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm here to break down the week's top takeaways. We had two guests this past week. We had Sharon Katz, a writer for ESPN's Stats and Information Group, a growing group of analysts and dedicated sports statisticians who have been collected by ESPN's Ben Alomar to offer analytical insight to the millions of viewers and writers and readers of ESPN's Sports Machine. And our second guest was Jeff Sagarin. Jeff Sagarin is one of the grandfathers, if you will, of the statistical analysis of sports, and he produces rankings, which can be found on USA Today, and he's been doing this since the 1970s, so he's one of the four founders of sports analytics. Here's our first clip. Curious what's, what you guys are working on now. Like, What frontier are you pushing on? What cool product should we expect to see from you in the next couple of years? Yeah, um, so we've been doing a lot with win probability. So we have live win probability for the NFL and college football on every box score right now. Our next step is basketball. So the team, not so much myself, but the rest of the team are diving into basketball win probability and mm-hmm. um, creating a model. Um, in the very near future, uh, with the NFL, so Brian Burke is on our team, who's mm-hmm. a big name in football analytics. So he has these live playoff probabilities. So it uses live win probability and your chance to make the playoff as the games go on. And mm-hmm. Maybe you aren't even playing, but someone in your division is playing and losing, so your chance would go up. Mm-hmm. Um, that will be on .com, I believe, this coming Sunday and the rest of the Sundays of the season. So that's something we're pretty excited about. So this win probability calculator, which I think is really fascinating, particularly in football, because you can use it to evaluate play choices almost on a live basis. Who's doing that for you? Are you guys writing it yourselves, the journalists, the the upfront people? Or do you have a team of sort of quant jocks in the background crunching numbers and pulling out these, uh, putting these together? Yeah, Brian Burke's really been driving that. Um, he had it on his old site, and then when he came to ESPN, we kind of converted his numbers to ours. And it's a lot with the technology team. It's the whole thing to get it on .com and working live because take the feed obviously and run it through our numbers and somehow put something out within less than a second after the play. Um, So it's a big process, but Brian's been the main one driving that. So that was Sharon talking about an upcoming addition to ESPN Sports Broadcasting, which would be a calculator which displays on the screen what the win probabilities are for each team. And also the probabilities of making playoffs and other background information that could change based on what your opponents and your competitors are doing. It's actually fascinating. I mean, imagine watching a football game and see them uh, go for it on fourth down and watch the win probability shift right in front of your eyes. Um, One of the things that interests me, and this was the the essence of my question, which was how are they doing this? Who is doing this for them? There are simple ways to do win probability calculations. So 
And those probably have to do mainly, if not exclusively, with the time remaining in the game. Um, if it's baseball, it's the inning. If it's basketball, the time remaining. Football, time remaining. And the differential score. Um, I think football is actually most interesting because football has this sort of lots of stuff can happen even though you're not scoring, and that can change the win probabilities. Basketball is probably least interesting. It's probably almost exclusively a function of the score and the amount of time remaining. And I think baseball is probably kind of in the middle. But we look forward to seeing that from ESPN when they have it up and running. Our next clip. We want to hear your take on what's going to happen in the playoffs. Your personal take or ESPN Analytics take? I see that you tweeted sometime last night, team advancement chances. Is that the best place to get it? What What do you think is going to go down here in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, so I guess the, the big story is will Alabama just crush everybody or will it be an interesting playoff? I think it'll be an interesting playoff. I mean, we're, stranger things have happened. Ohio State won two years ago as a four seed. Um, but Alabama right now is playing as well as you can make the case any team in college football history. Their defense is the most dominant I've seen in a very long time. So the question of if someone can challenge Alabama, obviously who gets in is very interesting and will mm-hmm. be a lot of fun over the next week. But mm-hmm. um and that team that gets in, is it going to be Penn State who might lose by 15 to Alabama, or is it somebody who who might give them more of a, a run? Sharon, that, have, have that you, wasn't really fair to Penn State. They've been playing better, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> have you looked at all, or do you have an opinion about, you know, does this five-week period until, let's call it the first semifinal game, you know, put Urban Meyer with five weeks against any team, and I'm not saying they're going to beat Alabama, but they'll narrow the gap. Have you looked at you know any of that about the, kind of this lengthy period? Maybe Alabama is much better when they only, the other team only has a week to prepare, and maybe they're just much better when the other team has five weeks. I should look at that. That is interesting. The one thing we have looked at is um, our bowl model. So we have a slightly different game prediction model for bowls, which basically regresses it a little bit to the mean. We found that our original model, um, there's a lot more upsets in bowls, and obviously some of that is because two good teams are playing each other, but there's all these factors that you can't really measure. How will the five-week layoff affect teams? Obviously not for the playoff, but there's other teams in bowls like preparing for the NFL draft, or what will their motivation be? So we found that the our model needed to be regressed a little bit, um, and that obviously has to do with the kind of thing that you were talking about. So the focus of the conversation is on forecasting Alabama, and everyone has or is viewing them as the sort of mega monster in this upcoming playoffs. Eric asks an interesting question. What is uh, What can possibly change if there's a, a long time to prepare? So the season is ending, and there's going to be about five weeks between the end of the season and the bowl. What will, say, Urban Meyer do in order to prepare for Alabama, and how does that change the forecasts? I think it's an unknowable thing. Um, it is an interesting question, and we wonder whether Alabama will smoke their way through the playoffs as as everyone is predicting. Um, In fact, I actually read an article in the Wall Street Journal which suggested that there are people talking about Alabama being competitive against the Cleveland Browns, the worst team in the NFL. The article essentially said that is ridiculous. The they are still college players. They are kids. And of course, that still leaves a lot of uncertainty in the forecasting. Next clip. So, Sharon, let me ask you a question. What have you seen change over the years that you've been at ESPN around 
analytics. So it, whether it is it better data, is it more sophisticated analytics? How, how do you think, just in the years you've been at ESPN, kind of how the field of analytics has changed? Or maybe it's the p- amount of play it gets on air. H- how have you seen it change? Yeah, it's changed a ton since I've been here. So I started six and a half years ago, and basically every full screen you'd see would be like team, win-loss, yards per game, just the most basic stats you can think of. Um, there's a lot more analytics on there, whether it's any of our power ratings or projections using 538 stuff on air. Um, even something like basketball efficiency, not that complex. Uh, that was never there six and a half years ago. So I think people are buying into it. They're still skeptics. Um, definitely tough to get buy-in from some of the anchors, but um, I think it's growing. The data is growing, uh, and it's only going to continue to grow. Well, that's why we're here. The statistics, the analysis is becoming mainstream. And there you have it from Sharon Katz, a writer and for ESPN Stats and Information Group. And it's becoming more and more universal. I still wonder whether or not the public really buys it. I know that um, things like efficiency and and war in baseball or actually in you know, cross sports, this wins above replacement is still something that still bothers people a little bit. They like yards. They like home runs. They like shooting percentage. Those are still um, first and foremost in people's minds. And, and I'm actually advocating to get rid of them because they're more historically um, accurate in a certain sense. You want to know who won. You want to know who scored. Th- th- those statistics explain that piece of the puzzle. But of course, the depth is where you get um, the real insights, and that's where we need better statistics. So speaking of better statistics, let's listen to Jeff Sagarin, a statistician whose rankings can be found in ESPN and has been doing this for a very, very long time. When a season's totally over, and let's say we all know how to do the simple least squares, right? Least squares fitting of the games, and it solves also for the home advantage for the given sport and season that year. When the season's totally over, and you have it answer the question, you know, just prints it out automatically. That way, my, uh, When you plug the final ratings back into a season, watch it, it does it any week you're doing it, but you might, it's interesting when a season's totally over. What's the average mean absolute deviation, and what's the uh, root mean square error? And even when a season is totally over, let's say college football, you'll still get a root mean square error over, over 10. Mm-hmm. There's a randomness you just can't beat. Okay, yeah. and of course, trying to pick the games in advance, uh, you'll get a standard EV you know, sigma of about maybe. Mm, why don't we just say somewhere in a fifteen to seventeen range, depending on the season. Wow. So Jeff is actually starting off with the premise that we all know how to do least squares. I certainly know how to do least squares, and I know my colleagues do, but I wouldn't guess that all our listeners know how to do least squares. So let me explain it. Least squares is a method of taking the data that you've observed and essentially fixing and making forecasts that are um, that are use the data that you have to fit the outcomes as closely as possible, and the error is judged on a squared error basis. And that's the technology. It's been around for a very long time. And uh, what Jeff is telling you, if you use essentially a use a power ranking that you develop using this least squares method to forecast the outcome of a particular football game, then even if you feed into the least squares regression program, all of the data for the entire season and you use that data, the season's already occurred, you still can't predict 
the outcome of a game to less than 10 points. And let me make that more specific. You don't get to change. You make the same forecast for the team each game, and every every team gets its own, its own ranking, its own power ranking. And if effectively, the, the predicted f- score outcome is the difference between those power rankings plus a home field advantage. And that's amazing that you really can't do it even after the season is over with accuracy better than 10 points. Um, if you try to do that in advance, in other words, for true forecasting, your errors are about 15 points. So predicting the outcome of a, of a um, football game is just hard. And I think we know that. Next clip. Jeff, you're, you were there essentially in the beginning of analytics, especially for football. And it's in a very different place now. What, what's, your, what's your take on what's going on with analytics and football now? And how have you kept current and competitive with these new systems? Actually, I probably haven't. My go, I, people say, well, do you use yards, you know, all the details out of a game? There's drives. I say, no, I use the final scores and the locations of the games. Because I remember one guy who was uh, in the uh, My joke is scores have a 100% correlation with scores. And um, people I know nowadays, there are all these things, drives, how many drives, uh, all these things about drive theory. And what's your fraction of making it on third down? Well, it's all predicated. If my team's better than yours and I'm pushing you around, the reason you won't be making third downs plays that often is you may be in third and 11 a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay? Or if you're a lot better than me, it's not that the fact that you're good on third down is winning for you. You may be in third and two a lot of the time. Well, Jeff is explaining some of the underpinnings of an analyst's life and essentially he's saying that he actually doesn't use any of the complex data analysis that I know that Cade uses in Massey Peabody and I'm not sure that his explanation is um, all that convincing I think that he just doesn't really have the tools to do it and he's created nevertheless a career based on just the very simple statistics that you can gather um, by looking at a box score he also says something very important about overfitting. He talks about a particular observation. Let's say you observe that a that a, a team is very good on, say, third down or very poor on third down. If you don't know the context and the background, you may be making a false conclusion or a false inference. And it's due to what we call in statistics confounding. So if a team always finds themselves in, in third down because they're just generally not good at first and second down, that has a, a confounded effect on your conclusion. And that makes, of course, statistics and sports in general very hard and with with certain sports like football and basketball where the interplay among all the players is is very very deeply intertwined it's hard to tease out individual components let's listen to our last clip which is just the four of us chit-chatting away about a a sport which we don't spend too much time talking about on wharton moneyball chess you made something about a is it a speed match are they actually they're about to start speed match remember the old days when uh, 50, not 50 years ago, but 25 years ago, Kasparov, Karpov, they'd play 48 games, it would last five months, and <laughs> there would be no draws, right. you know, no time limits, and it was it was the basically mental destruction. So I mean, what's the total people. amount of time a so, player has in these speed so matches? So what's going on, the speed matches are 25 minutes each. Um, Good Lord. But that's that's actually an enormous amount enormous of time. Enormous amount of time. Because what happens if they if they play, they, I think they play four speed matches, and if it does, still draws, then they go to what they call Armageddon chess oh my goodness <laughs> and this is, is this, this the one where they wrestle in between yeah, matches that's great uh, it sounds great which actually from the analytics perspective it's interesting because chess is a game where you a sport if you want to call it that a game where there's tremendous uh, gaps between every level 
So it's unlike you know tennis. We're seeing you know, the top one can beat the top two, top three. It, it's uh, there's a lot of trading off. But it, in in bad in, example, in chess, but okay. bad ex- potentially bad example. But chess number one beats and wins, and you expect them to win. And right now, um, Carlson is is playing. He's a defending champion. He's number one, and he's this guy Sergey Karakin of, of Russian, if I'm pronouncing it properly. And he's nine, and he should never have gotten this far. Ah, it is considered okay. a tremendous upset. Well, there you have it, chess. Um, I think chess is is interesting. It's it's uh, it's. I, I was pondering whether it's even a sport at all. Uh, but one thing that it does have is the least amount of randomness. I mean, there is randomness, and that's a whole subject of a debate or a discussion on its own. But the observation is Carlson really should have walked all over Karajan, and um, and he didn't. It went to this sort of overtime format that they've introduced, where you have these speed matches. I will report at this at the time of this particular taping. Carlson destroyed and never got to Armageddon. So Shane, sorry, there was no wrestling, which would have been entertaining. But this concludes our Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. If you want to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under podcasts. Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball live every Wednesday 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's business radio channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your stats.